Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Calvin Carter, who is CEO of Bottle Rocket. We will discuss the disruptions caused by the connected consumer. Calvin established Bottle Rocket in 2008. He believes exceptionally innovative technology redefines our lives. He received the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2013. For the last 12 years, Calvin has pushed Bottle Rocket to become a renowned digital transformation company that connects future-focused brands and their customers through sophisticated yet simple experiences. Calvin, welcome. Thank you for having me. What can we look forward to as we look ahead in terms of connected consumers and, by extension, what disruptions will that bring? So um, uh, another really, you know, frankly shocking um, thing that we, we read, in a, um, it's in a Harvard Business Review, and this is actually two years, this information is two years old, um, <clears throat> that um, uh, half of um, uh, Fortune 500s have either, um, you know, gone by the wayside uh, or they have, um, uh, you know, disappeared, gone bankrupt, or been delisted since um, 2000. Actually, I think it's slightly more than half. So, you know, by the time this was written, it was uh, 17 years after the, the baseline of year 2000. So in 17 years, more than half disappeared. But the interesting thing is, is like, like that's already happened. That's, you know, proven's happened. It's simple to, to see, see that that happened. But then you start to think, like, okay, well, was that a grand purge? And now we won't see that type of thing? Well, the same studies uh, say that um, the, the share of market leaders that are expected to fall out of the top ten in their industries – Due to digital disruption, over the next five years, it's 40%. So that is, you know, maybe a little bit less than that 50-something, but 40% are expected to um, uh, to fall out of their top 10. Now, that doesn't that's not constrained to only Fortune 500. That's the top 10 in any and every industry. Um, so it's it's really it's not something that we're done with. There continues to be a purging of brands, um, either completely disappearing or just becoming so marginalized that they, that they, um, that they really can't uh, continue to be uh, a major force going forward. But the good news is, is, you know, if you start now, you know you can you can you can um, be one of those that that do survive because not every competitor in your industry is going to make the investments, is going to take the time, that is going to make the changes, and is going to take on the risks that are necessary for this kind of disruption. You just don't want to be, or hopefully don't want to be one of those um, uh, companies in your industry. Hopefully you want to be uh, a company that's either has already taken advantage of this. We have many clients. Um, Chick-fil-A uh, has done unbelievably well with their mobile ordering and mobile payments and mobile, you know, you know, giveaway and everything else. It's really, 
it's amazing the the increase in their business and um, the the number of people that are using that now, and the fact that um, you know they have a higher ticket price, if you would, from orders coming in that way. So there's some companies that have already taken advantage of it, and they're now they're now they are enjoying the um, the benefits of having moved quickly early on. Uh, we were helping you know Chick Fil A, if I'm not mistaken, roughly five years ago. Um, so that was I wouldn't say that was bleeding edge, but it was leading edge. And then there's companies that are like halfway through a transformation now, or at least they've started the conversation. They started to, um, you know, mark budget for 2020. They've started to make changes internally that are necessary um, to really embrace transformation and get into this this this, this digital experience um, way of doing business with connected customers. And then there are, of course, the, the, the companies that haven't started yet, and it, become, it comes down to them as to, like, well, do you have a short-term view or do you have a long-term view? If you have a long-term view, you should start. If you have a short-term view, then it's hard to provide any logic that it makes sense because it doesn't make sense in the short term, but it's the only thing that makes sense in the long term. Let's go back to the study for a second. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding. So the study is saying not just that these Fortune 500 companies have disappeared, have been bought out or delisted, but that the reason that happened can be linked directly to a disruption from connected customers. Is that right? That is that is what the Harvard Business Review said. It is um, essentially – uh, I believe the way they put it is failure to achieve digital change. And the other number that I mentioned, which was the 40 percent um, of, you know, all the all the companies in the top 10 um, of their industries uh, will fall out of that top 10, not necessarily go bankrupt, but, you know, decline. Um, that is also based on digital because of digital disruption. So they are making the bright line connection between the what we're observing and the how it happened. And, you know, everything is a death from a thousand cuts, but some cuts are the ones that really do the most damage. And so while you could, I'm sure you could find an example of a company in the Fortune 500 who may have also had some issues with fraud, or maybe they had you know, bad products, or maybe they 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 brought harmful products to the marketplace, or that sort of thing. But the um, but the thing that really you know um, has stood out in this study is is digital uh, change, digital, digital disruption, and either succeeding in responding to it, or failing in responding to it, or failing to even try to respond to it. What are the biggest challenges? for our listeners who are sitting there thinking, whoa, I don't want to be one of those companies. I want to make sure that I've got the right amount of this connected customer services. What are the necessary elements, if you will, or to what degree do you need to have this digital experience available to your customers? Is there some sort of a test, some sort of a formula when people listen to us and they can figure out, am I doing the right thing? Should I be doing more? Should I be doing less? How can you gauge 
where you fall in that spectrum and whether you're at risk? So painting with the broad brush, you know, your mileage may vary, so to speak, is is there there are, um, in general, if someone is asking, I wonder if we're doing enough, the odds are no, you're not. You might be doing a lot and you might be doing a little, but this there's an insatiable appetite and a growing consumer base that is basically saying, if you don't provide me a great experience, I'll find someone who does. So let's look at, you know, banking, for example. I, I mean, 20 years ago, would you have ever thought to, you know, to deposit your money in a company that you can't see and touch, people that you can't see and touch? Um, you don't know where they are. Uh, you've never heard of them before, that sort of thing. But now these, like, digital virtual banks are popping up all over the place. Not all of them will survive. Some of them will, will be unbelievable leaders and, and will win in, in this uh, disruption and transformation. And then some existing banks, traditional banks, will fall by the wayside, either in sentiment um, or in their going concern. Uh, but some will, will bridge that divide, and they will say, well, what if we could take what these startups don't have and then add to that what these startups are providing to customers, which is usually a more enjoyable experience. That gets very powerful. The same thing goes with um, Amazon, if you don't mind me you know, continuing on this for a second. Um, you know, a lot of retailers have thrown up their hands and said, we can't compete. We, there's literally no way for us to ever, you know, differentiate ourselves enough where we will compete with Amazon. And while that might be the case for some, you know, retailers, it's really not the case for the vast majority of them. And what, and what I mean by that is, like, look what Walmart has been doing and what Target has been doing. Of course, they went first because they have probably the most to lose, but they also have the deepest pockets to do it. But the things that are considered, you know, leading edge today will be considered our new normal tomorrow, and, you know, prices and costs will come down. And so they've been able to take advantage of combining their physical presence and then add to it all of, like, the great, super convenient ways of doing business through, through an app or through a site, that sort of thing. Because people are, are so much more interested in self-service than calling a phone number, waiting on a line, walking around and trying to find it. You know, for me, there's some things that I like to do the quote-unquote old-fashioned way. I like to grocery shop in the grocery store. For me, it's a fun experience. And I go to grocery, you know, stores like Whole Foods or Central Market, which they focus on experience, not just having milk at the, at the lowest cost. And for me, I like that experience. But when it came to, you know, buying most Everything that I'm, that we're buying, um, for, for the holidays, it was Amazon. And, and it's interesting because I kind of felt bad doing it, but then I said, well, I mean, it's the retailer's fault for not making this easy for me to do. It's either going to take me less than a minute to find, buy, check out, and know I'm going to get delivered, or it's going to take me an hour to drive, to go in, Hopefully they have it in stock. Maybe call them on the phone and wait 20 minutes before they, um, 
you know, before they can tell me whether or not one's even even in stock. But there are ways to take what you have now to get what you want. I, I call it the entrepreneur's mantra, mantra. Use what you got to get what you want. And so it, whether it's a large retailer or small um, individual location retailer, think about the things that are unique to you, but do so through the lens of your customer. Don't buy into their, your own thinking about yourself. Buy into your consumers thinking about yourself. One way to do that is, um, you, we, you know, something that we do all the time and a lot of com- companies do, they build what's called a, a user journey. And they basically almost like, you know, write a story and they break out the different brand touch points. And all the way from, you know, cause there's a, there's a, you know, a, a, there's a long life cycle from discovery to exploring to buying, using the thing, asking for help, question support, engaging others um, in in your buying experience, telling and remarking about it, whether it's good or bad. So at all those different levels, there are opportunities to to say like, well, I think it's easy to find me because I'm on the corner of two major intersections, but. I wonder if customers think think it's easy to find me. Well, I think it's easy to to buy from me because I always have two um, cashiers at the register just to make sure. But do your consumers think you're easy to buy from? And what happens is is you draw this gap between what you believe to be true and what your customers believe to be true. And that goes back to that whole expectation and reality gap. Um, The... And the the best way to get into the heads of your customers is to to involve them in the thinking, and that's hard to do. To be honest with you, you know, there's there there is some value from focus groups. There is some value to individual interviews and testing. There's a lot of value in ethnographic surveys and following customers throughout their day. We do that for a lot of um, uh, customers that, that we serve. We, uh, one of our clients that we love is Southwest Airlines, and we, we literally go to the airports and we say, hey, um, I notice you have a, you know, a, a, a rollerboard with you. Um, would you mind, you know, taking this phone and walking between here and your gate and um, buy a new, uh, buy a new um, uh, ticket? We'll pay for the ticket, but we want to see whether or not what we've created is so convenient and easy to use that you can do it with one hand while you're walking and dragging your baggage with you. And if we can do that, that's a step above. And and it becomes really important that we do those things because we have a customer in front of us. We can we can watch them, we can videotape them, we can take notes, we have you know, there's ethnographics um, uh, studiers and testers are really good at their craft, and they can kind of tease out those areas of frustration that we mark down on that user journey, and then we try to figure out how do we make that, that moment of frustration a moment of surprise and delight. But you asked, uh, um, I think you also asked, like, you know, where, where should people start? Or if they, if someone on, you know, listening says, you know what, I want to, I want to dig into this. Here's a few things, um, you know, if you kind of forget, forget everything, 
from uh, from our discussion. Here's kind of like the five things that that I think are really good conversation starters um, within any organization. The first one is I believe that simplicity drives enjoyment, enjoyment drives engagement, and engagement drives revenue. So if you want more revenue, most companies focus on the right-hand side of that, of, that, uh, of, uh, of that paragraph. They focus on the revenue. And what we say is, let's flip the script. Let's do a 180 here. Let's not focus on revenue. Let's focus on making a simple, enjoyable, remarkable um, experience for your customer. Because that, because if you can get enjoyment, you will get engagement. And if you get engagement, you will have revenue, more revenue, more consistent revenue, and revenue with lower cost. The higher your engagement, the lower your churn, the lower your cost and higher your margins when serving existing customers. So that's number one. Number two is um, experiences really are likely the most important thing you can be investing in right now. We work with a large um, uh, distributor that has 25, you know, large warehouses across the nation, and they serve, I believe they deliver to about 10,000 in, um, independent retailers. So it's a, you know, pretty, pretty decent-sized operation. And what they decided to do was um, pull back on investments in their traditional business, um, such as uh, expansion of warehouses, um, uh, um, uh, you know, upgrading trucks, things like that, so that they could focus on the digital experience that they are that they are providing or not providing to their customers. In this case, their customers are the are, are retail um, um, shop owners and, and, and managers. And when they uh, do that. When, when they did that, they were, they were investing in experience. They were focusing on and they were injecting new energy, new ideas, um, uh, new budgets um, into this thing called experience. And what, um, you know, you know, what I have heard is that they, um, when they did some recent transactions, they, found that their enterprise value was higher and that um, the investment, um, you know, world was more interested in the experiential and digitally driven uh, experiences versus how many trucks, how many warehouses, what's the cost to pick, pack, and ship. So it becomes a very interesting thing, and it wouldn't be interesting if it, was, if it wasn't somewhat unique. It's not completely unique. There's other companies out there doing these sorts of things, but you'd be shocked how many are actually getting it right. So the third one, um, consumers, and, and I mean B2B buyers as well as B2C buyers, they have forever changed how they behave. This is no, I mean, what, what really is, is painful is when we work with an organization and it, the evidence is right in front of them, but for whatever reason, they're not taking the action. And, um, you know, I believe that, and a lot of people believe that, it actually takes us longer to come to grips with a new reality than it does to react to it. Reacting to it can be actually done, you know, fairly quickly, but the, but 
the process of getting to the point where the pain is so great that you finally see, you know, what's right in front of you. That's the long part, and that's the part that companies can short-circuit. The reacting to the change is, you know, it takes however long it takes to do that. But what we can control is how long we wait and kind of go through the, you know, you know, disbelief and, you know, disappointment and all those other things that lead up to us finally saying we need to make a change. Um, I believe it was the um, – this was probably a couple of years ago on an earnings call, um, and this was shortly after Amazon bought Whole Foods, the CMO for um, AGB uh, grocery stores uh, said, quote, we did not see this coming. Well, the reality was is there were at least 10 or 20 different individual proof points that Amazon was on the charge for grocery delivery and things like that, from startups that they funded to other smaller um, chain stores that they purchased and did test, testings in, uh, to um, pilots and market testing, to all sorts of different things. So the evidence was there. There just wasn't, for whatever reason, enough pain for that organization to make a change. Now, obviously, they have to make the change, but they had the opportunity to do that five years earlier, which would have been great because they would have been have made the change before their other competitors could have could have made the change. So behavior has changed. It's changed forever. We're not going back. We rarely ever go back to, to you know, previous things. And you can use this as your advantage to, you know, either disrupt or be disrupted by the competitor who gets there first. The fourth thing is um, we're, we are a big believer in diversity in every sense of the word. And the reason we are big believers in diversity, um, you know, morality aside, the reason we believe in diversity is diversity um, always builds a better outcome. And what I mean by that is this. If let's say, and when I say diversity, I mean diversity against across age groups, um, ethnicities, uh, genders, cultural beliefs, um, other belief systems, et cetera, having a kind of a pluralistic group um, together that have maybe come to that table from, you know, different paths of life, um, and they're sitting together and they're working on a problem together using the, you know, the, um, the, Example of a blind spot, like, you know, wherever I'm looking, there's so much of my surrounding that I'm not looking at. That's my blind spot. You could sit next to me and you could see into my blind spot and then you could help me have a more complete view of my surroundings by um, by you looking where I can't look. And if you do that with more and more people, but you do it through different perspectives you get better outcomes. Companies that are focusing on diversity um, are producing better products, they're producing better experiences, and they are taking into account and not marginalizing any one particular group. There's a lot of um, uh, um, uh, business leaders out there that are either Gen, Gen Xers or, or baby boomers that almost um, – they almost demonize millennials. 
well, they're, you know, they're this or they're that or they don't, you know, quote, unquote, don't work hard. It's ridiculous. You know, no, they're just different, just like you were different, you know, when 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 you were coming onto the scene. And by having – the reason I think the diversity needs to go across age groups as well is because this connected consumer goes from, you know, you know, uh, newly becoming an independent consumer to um, end of life. And when you get a group together that is representative of that, even maybe even more diverse than what you're what you're designing for, you get better outcomes. That's why that you know, Google and Apple work so hard, and they have some really interesting. Um, they publish all of their diversity numbers in great detail. Um, which I think is wonderful. You know, it's would be probably considered, you know, private information, but I think it's wonderful because it sets a bar for lots of other organizations to also um, try to achieve. So we actually use the Apple and Google averages when we're like, you know, judging our own success or lack thereof in diversity. But diversity is going to get you the requisite variety of the voices that you need to stay relevant. You cannot do this in an insular situation with with like-minded uh, people that look alike. It needs to be a group that is truly diverse. And the final one is it's kind of like the easiest way to put it is time is of the essence. You know, uh, you. But the good news is, is you really don't have to wait until you have it all figured out to take action. We live in a world where we have proven that agile things the 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 um uh, uh uh the idea of you know coming up with an idea building something and then testing it it does not have to change the world you do not have to have it all figured out you could take one interaction so let's say you had a user journey and there's 30 interactions you have with a with a customer all the way from discovery to them remarking about the experience you could just pick a couple of them at first and you know good to have some experts help you pick ones, pick the right ones, because many times it's difficult to see the forest for the trees when you're inside the organization that's trying to transform itself. But when you have the ability to um, pick a few things and take action, you then learn from that, have the confidence that you're going to do it better the next time, and then do that over and over and over again. This means that business leaders have to become comfortable with failure and ambiguity. You have to be able to hold two things at once. You have to hold what you know and what you don't know. And then move forward with the full expectation of a quote-unquote failure. Speaking about failure, failure for a second, I don't believe you actually ever fail until you give up. If you fail and give up, then you failed. If you failed or made a mistake or whatever you want to call it, and then you continued, we call that an iteration. An iteration is a good thing. We tried a small thing, it didn't work as well as we thought, and so we recalibrated and we tried again, and it got a little better and a little better and a little better. A lot of um, organizations that we work with, they feel like they have to boil the ocean, and they say, we don't have the time, we don't have the money, we have to do all these things. We say, well, why don't we just try a couple of things and learn from those things? And if we see promise, we certainly will get smarter about our business and what our consumers think about us. But if, some, if we find something and we do it you know, pretty well, then maybe we move to the next thing, and we do that as well. So the advice is you do not have to have it all figured out. But 
you do have to take action and start your own movement. Let's discuss that a little bit because we know that in general we humans are resistant to change and adopting Mm -hmm. new technology and more connectivity, more being connected, is part of that change. What do you say to those who are resistant to these changes, in particular to embracing that as part of their business model, when they say that this brings on further loss of employment, despite the low unemployment numbers, we know that there are many people who are unemployed, many people who want to be employed, or the people who say that we have a brain drain because many of the very capable young Americans, you were talking about generations, millennials, certainly Gen Zs, are leaving the country or are unable to find jobs because many of the jobs have gone overseas. There are few entry-level positions or that jobs are going away entirely because of artificial intelligence, or that the gig economy doesn't bring benefits to the people who work in it that lead to bad practices. Uh, There's certainly a lot of talk about sexual assaults in some of the places, or unethical conduct, people who are renting homes under false pretenses and then having parties and paying for it. All of these things are part, certainly involved in this ability to connect online rather than in person. The idea that has come out recently that there is a very high percentage of on-the-job injuries that are resulting from online companies, one very particular one that you were discussing earlier has been outed for a very high number of injuries, and some people are feeling uncomfortable doing business with those businesses. What is the response to that. Those are the negative sides of that. And for some people who are resistant to change, these are some of the reasons that they give. What would you say to them? First, I, I, I want to um, – let's talk about AI first. Um, I, I was at an event recently, and um, Stefan Pretorius from WPP was, was speaking, and someone asked him, um, what do you think about – you know, AI taking people's jobs. And he said, um, the person who's going to take your job is someone who knows how to use AI. The AI itself is actually less um, uh, of of a threat in the long run than our ability to retool ourselves, to provide appropriate training and support um, to those individuals that are in industries and positions that um, are ripe for offshoring and ripe for exiting uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the the world. The good news is there are so there is so much opportunity. There's almost an uh, seemingly endless. I'm sure it's not infinite um, appetite for um, students coming out of schools that have some sort of grasp on new ways of doing things, whether that be technology, actually coding themselves. Um, at Bottle Rocket, half the people here are are engineers. They are, you know, very, very talented, best in, in the in the um, 
nation engineers that really know how to build high-fidelity shrink-wrapped compiled software. But the other half are artists and project managers and product managers and business strategists and, you know, designers, visual designers and experience designers and quality assurance professionals. And all of these um, uh, groups are needed together to do the type of stuff that not just Bottle Rocket is doing this today, but what so many companies are doing today. So even if, you know, you don't, like or find that you're not very good at coding, that doesn't mean that technology is you know has to pass you by. Half of the people who work here can't code, but they do other things in a way that it, it all works together. So a project manager that has worked on technology-oriented projects is going to um, – Again, broad brush, but in general, is going to do um, better and be better off and have more opportunities than a project manager that might have focused on physical things like construction and things like that. Those opportunities are available too, but the um, the the value add, the premium, is placed on those that are able to understand, comprehend, not be scared off by and embrace um, technology-enabled solutions. So that's the thing about AI. I just thought it was like a, an interesting quote of like, you know, where, where's the real threat? And then that goes into um, uh, um, uh, something else, which is if, if the real threat is um, you know, your fellow American or your fellow, you know, Englishman that is – that is leaning in that direction, what does it mean for you? We've already seen that there are um, pockets um, of our nation which are, you know, disenfranchised and left out of the conversation, sometimes because they were never invited to the conversation and sometimes because they don't want to be in the conversation. It's the, But if you look at the trends, like right now, there are so many more people working in renewable energy than coal. It's just it's just a huge differential, and doesn't mean energy is going away. It means how we get it, where we get it, and the skill sets we need to manage it are changing. And there are individuals that, you know, sadly don't have the resources or the exposure um, and access to be able to retool themselves. They have the intent, but they can't take the action. But then the reality is there are others who who are, you know. Uh, still haven't, uh, you know, admitted to a new reality. And they are, um, you know, holding on to, um, you know, ways of the past. And a lot of times it has to do with age groups. If you are nearing retirement, you're probably not interested in, in learning a whole new set of things. And I would understand that. If you are very young and you have decades of life in front of you, uh, first off, you have less to lose because you haven't built up this experience and, and muscle memory and the 10,000 hours that um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about. The um, you do have the ability to do it, but you've got to take you've got to take action. And about the gig economy, the gig economy um, does get a bad rap because there are um, uh, relative to the total number of transaction experiences a small number of really terrible things that happen to people. 
um, either stories of um, gig economy workers um, being attacked or attacking others, or gig economy workers you know, eating your French fries while they're driving it to your house, uh, to um, gig economy workers using, you know, their car like in Lyft and Uber to, you know, uh, to be a better predator. There are examples of that, but relative to the total number of transactions, and of course, there's also the issue of, of, of healthcare, which is an ongoing, you know, concern. Um, the, there are, there are issues like that, but the vast majority of the experiences and transactions, um, aren't that. And it's similar to that, that, that percentage or probability of credit card fraud. Every time I use my credit card, I'm putting myself at some fairly minor but real um, risk of my identity being taken, whether I use it at a restaurant, whether I use it at a gas pump, whether I use it online. Um, there's always a risk to all those things. But the, the payoff, if you would, of a better experience and how important that is to today's consumer, it eclipses it. That doesn't mean that it's not important to, to focus on. It does not mean we should not be talking about, you know, um, security and safety in gig economy type roles. We should, we should, it's not that we shouldn't be talking about those things. It's that we should be talking about those things as we continue to progress what people have, um, have, have said they want, which is better experience, more convenience, less friction, more personalization. And when you, uh, talk about on-the-job injuries. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about Amazon, which has gotten, uh, you know, and rightly so, a bad rap for that. Here's an interesting way to look at it. In, in no way am I am I letting Amazon off the hook uh, for uh, uh, for these injuries. So I, I said before about how you know instead of focusing on revenue, which is an internal thing, focusing on your business, the needs of your business. Focus on simple, meaning focus on your customer, your consumer, your user, what's best for them, not just what's best for you, but what's best for them. You become obsessed with your customer. And that is what Amazon at their core, I believe it's one of their tenants, is they are customer obsessed with the customer, obsessed. And I love that they pick that word because obsession isn't necessarily a logical thing. It's an emotional thing. And you, when you, when you allow yourself to be obsessed with something, you will stop at nothing. And there's blowback to that. So I would argue that while Amazon has been obsessing on about its um, customers, they have maybe let their, you know, um, eye off the ball with their employees. And so we see the, you know, the bad part of that, but that doesn't mean that they can't add employees to their obsession or at least their, their thinking. An example would be many, many years ago, and I don't know how many years, but let's call it a decade or more. Um, Apple was held out as a terrible polluter, you know, because it was, you know, they were producing so many screens and devices and, and, you know, chips and, you know, these things take, you know, fairly specialized materials and processes that aren't very clean. 
um, just the just the mercury in the glass, um, you know, in some of the older machines, those sorts of things was really creating a concern about environmental um, damage. And then, so that was true. You know, that, that is true, that they were, you know, not really doing the best they could then. Now you look at almost every single Apple announcement, they will talk about the environmental impact. And now they are actually one of the least polluting companies on a, on a per product basis um, uh, in, in technology and device manufacturing. Doesn't mean they're perfect. They've got all sorts of black eyes, you know, with, with partners and, and, um, and, and working environments uh, with the partners they have overseas. But just like Apple took something that was a weakness and turned it into a strength, Amazon can take something that is a weakness and turn it into a strength, too. My gut says they're going to figure that out. Um, my gut says they're still going to be more obsessed with the consumer than anyone else. But my gut does say that they are going to, you know, expand that light cone so it's not just spotlight on their customer, but a spotlight on stakeholders. Let's go back to your five recommendations. Let's see if I've got them right for our listeners to have a takeaway. Focus on simplicity, enjoyment, engagement, and that will lead you to revenue. Experiences Mm -hmm. are the most important thing to focus on. Number three, Mm -hmm. control how long we wait to make the change. Number four, focus on diversity. And number five, time is of the essence. Did I summarize that well enough? And the thing I would add to the last one was is, is you don't have to wait until you've got it all figured out to take action. You can take, you know, the first step, and that will lead you to the next step. But when you don't take a step at all, you are choosing to not be a winner in this new consumer paradigm. So not doing anything is making a decision. Yes, exactly. Alvin, thank you for joining us from Dallas, Texas. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed myself. And to our audience, you have been listening to Calvin Carter, who is CEO of Bottle Rocket, who discussed the disruptions caused by the connected consumer. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.